so welcome everyone to episode 58 um of Podchat Live and, and the topic of discussion is motivational interviewing, which um well, well if you're not familiar with what it is, that's exactly what, what the the goal of this episode is. It's I did a little search earlier just to to see how popular it was um uh, in the sort of um out there in the in the internet world and on, on PubMed there's well over four thousand papers published on motivational interviewing the ma- vast majority of which outside the world uh, the realms of, of directly of podiatry more in things like smoking cessation and weight loss and yeah. and things like this um on google scholar 191,000 hits um and we, we're delighted to have three uh, guests with us today all of whom have contributed to to those numbers in, in some way mostly within the realm of uh, the diabetic foot and behavior change and adherence to uh, behaviors that would reduce diabetic foot ulcerations and and the use of foot orthoses and footwear which which we'll let them talk about more so uh, massive thanks and welcome to joanne Patton from university of plymouth uh, jody binning from glasgow caledonian and andrew hill who's we're going to affiliate with the university of bath because that's where he's doing even though you don't work there i know that's where you're doing your your professional doctorate um so thank you all for coming um we really appreciate it and um we're going to start by, I guess, just introducing the audience to motivation interviewing. Uh, what is it? The first time I, I sort of um, asked someone what it was when I started showing interest, they said to me, just think of it as the language of behaviour change. And I thought that was kind of a nice, uh, albeit very, very uh, brief way of, of summarising it. But um, let me uh, just, I'm just going to pick on Joanne first, if that's okay. And, and let me just ask you, Joanne, um, if someone were to say to you who is completely new to motivational interviewing, well, I'm a podiatrist, I don't know what this is. Uh, why do I care? You know, so what is it and, and why, why should I care? What, what, how would you feel that kind of question? Well, I think, um, first of all, it's uh, a community communication technique it's a tool um certainly within healthcare there's a there's a shift towards patient empowerment and patient-centered care and for me motivational interviewing is a communication technique that allows me um to interact with a patient in such a way as to uh, allow them to be empowered within the uh, consultation it's often described more as dancing with the patient rather than um, telling the patient. So it's a very gentle and collaborative technique. Perfect. Um, Jody. anything, I saw you nodding, nodding along, obviously. Uh, is there anything else you think uh, you would add? I don't think so. I don't think it's too, uh, I don't, like Joanne, I don't think it's too complex in its in its definition. I think it is, a communication technique, a way of talking with someone, not at someone. And as Joanna said, it's around um, sitting alongside someone rather than being in a position of expert opinion. Um, it's very much uh, that collaborative approach. So, yeah, I would I would agree that that, as Joanna said, that's that's pretty much how I see it. Perfect. And, and Andrew, I'll come to you. We've, I've definitely mm. been in discussions with you and, and in groups of people on various fora where we've time and time again said, uh, you know, it's all, you know, it's all in the history taking. The three most important things are history, history, history. And I think uh, we're very much taught that, you know, from undergraduate onwards uh, about how to take history with regard to what questions to ask. But perhaps, um, you know, when we're young and we, we don't have that bedside manner yet, we haven't quite learned the... Um, you know, for me, motivational interviewing isn't just necessarily about teaching people what to ask. It's like, like Joanne and Jodie have already said, it's how do we, how do we phrase these questions? What sort of language do we use? Um, 
what, what, what's your take on this to the, the completely sort of new person to MI? We're going to shorten it to MI from now on, if that's okay with everyone. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. <laughs> so we keep saying it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose my sort of biggest take home from all of it uh, when I've been looking at this is that, uh, and actually when I was first getting into this, I reflect a lot of what I saw as a, as a clinician in that you do your kind of interview style patient history taking and you're, you're asking a lot of questions and you're kind of getting some positive responses, not really getting a lot. Then 20 minutes later or 10 minutes later, you're having a conversation about something else and the patient starts divulging what essentially is more of the history that didn't come from the interview bit. Um, and actually, I suppose if we look at motivational interviewing in that particular context, it's just about really speaking to the patient about what's on their mind um, as the sort of primary in, if you like, of your, of your conversation. And from that, actually, your history taking gets ever more efficient uh, because you can find that just through a good listening style and then gently sort of nudging questions, you can get some really rich uh, information, which kind of means you don't have to do what feels like a more formal assessment. I think it's the the traditional form of assessment um, is made up of closed ended questions mm. where the patient yeah. uh, is usually a passive recipient. Um, and that puts you in a position really of, of power, if you like, and um, disempowers the patient. And I think mm. what motivational interview or MI um, allows you to do <laughs> is allows the patient to lead the discussion. So it's all about what's, most important for them um, and so you use much more open-ended questions and let the patient tell you their story rather than being led by the clinician perfect and I should probably have said probably a miss of me not to have said that that it was uh, first sort of framed as MI uh, by uh, psychologists Miller and Rolnick in you know I think mm. I'm right in saying if my, if my research is throughout the early 80s but sort of if you go back as far as the work of, of Carl Rogers in the late 50s, early 60s, even he was talking about sort of accurate empathy and, and the person-centred approach. So what's your thoughts, guys, all of you really, on, on when these sort of thoughts and theories have been floating around for since the late 50s, longer than all of us, possibly not Craig, um, but certainly longer than the rest of us. Why now? I mean, we're kind of talking now and everyone's kind of saying, right, we need to move towards this patient-centred approach. Why are we only just moving towards it in 2019 when, when it seems like it's been uh, known about for, for far, far longer? Well, I'll let you fight over think... that one. Well, I'll, I'll jump in first if you don't mind. Oh, sorry, go. Well, sorry, I was just going to say that... Um, I think it has been uh, quite well established in, in, in sort of very specific disciplines. So with, within sort of realms of counselling and psychology, this has been very well established. And I, and, um, I think Rolnick has been quoted as saying that at the time in the early 80s when him and Miller were, were sort of first was talking about this, they, they very much sort of felt a little bit like they were the, the dissenting voices amongst um, particularly things like addiction and smoking cessation and all these sorts of things. Um, I think the, the modern bit of it, I think, is it's just taken a while to, to spread its tentacles into other aspects of healthcare. Um, and I think actually what all healthcare professions are probably starting to do is realise that their role goes beyond their very narrow focus and discipline. And actually, we're all kind of involved in the, in the overall holistic care of, of our patients. Um, so, so my take is that it's just sort of led into other disciplines um, a bit more slowly. 
I think it's um, there's been a more fundamental shift than that, um, particularly in the NHS in the UK, and and I think it's moving in the US as well now. There's been a real um, problem, if you like, with uh, overburden within the NHS and how we're going to cope with the increased patient capacity, particularly within um, diabetic care. And the problem is that using the traditional model of, of treating patients and doing things for patients, the, uh, the healthcare systems just don't have capacity. So there's now a real shift towards patient self-management. Um, and I think as part of that shift, MI lends itself as a, as a tool um, and a communication method to encourage self-management. Do you agree, Jodie? I don't disagree with either either of those opinions. I've got a slightly more contentious view, however, around Lovely. why it, it, it might be uh, slow to be adopted. And I think it might be to do with the fact that we believe that we're patient-centred already. And I think mm. that we believe that we are uh, kind, compassionate and caring, which of course we are. But that isn't the same as the approach in motivational interviewing where you really are looking through a different lens and the approaches and techniques are really very different. So I think um, it's not that we haven't been person-centered, which its roots are in uh, Rogers and, and uh, described a, a long time ago. I just think putting those into practice requires a completely different mindset, um, which uh, uh, we haven't necessarily focused on because maybe we've been obsessed with knowledge rather than behaviors. I think we've been so... So yeah, keen, I, I agree, yeah, Jodie. So and to get the perfect advice sheet or the perfect delivery of advice, um, which is all knowledge based and haven't really up until now focused on you know, the fact that knowledge doesn't translate into doing. And I think we're trained to be fixers and problem solvers. And um, in, in our traditional uh, patient centred approach, we want to help the patient so much um, that, that we find it difficult to let go and let them help themselves and in some instances actually not help them because that's actually their choice. Um, you know, we're taught from, from first year graduates that, you know, we need to fix everything. Um, and that's not, not quite the ethos that MI uh, allows you to, to, to. And the NHS is also measured by outcomes how many orthotics you've issued, um, pain reduction, those sorts of outcomes. And again, it goes against what MI is all about, where actually the patient may choose not to have insoles. Do you know? So, Yeah, I think yeah. patient expectation comes in quite heavily here because um, on one hand, you're right, you know, we, we have been trained in a certain way to, to approach consultations a certain way. Um, and I think there's also generally from patients that kind of they, they turn up to a medical professional and, and what they're expecting is a lot of answers. Um, maybe what they're not expecting is something that's more akin to counselling. And it's just worth stressing that, you know, motivational interviewing for all of its fantastic qualities, it's not going to be suitable in every patient encounter for every, you know, everything that we need to maybe, um, you know, do within the, the roles of our, our jobs as podiatrists. There may be moments where it, it's less crucial than others. I think that's an important point is we may have lost the, the, uh, the thread that the focus of motivational interviewing is about change. So if somebody doesn't need to change and are already motivated and very able, capable, 
um, and aligned to that that you would like them to do and adherent, then motivational interviewing isn't needed. Similarly, if somebody doesn't have the capacity to change, then motivational interviewing might not be appropriate. So um, MI is about does have a focus on change and it is directional so in a in a particular direction uh, perceived to be uh, a, a good direction for improved health perfect this segues beautifully into the next line of question which is essentially why why people don't change and we're talking about behavior you know to to, to, to make it clear and um we you know we touched on there you know that we we have this sort of uh we, we, we're taught to we, it's ingrained within us that we're the experts we're the specialists we've got our certificate on the wall we're very quite rightly quite proud of our, the level of study that we've put in the level of knowledge we've attained so when someone comes in and they, they sit in our room they're going to do what we say because we we're the one with the certificate on the wall and they've got the problem and we just we're just going to tell them how to how to how to do it and and we all know because we're all clinicians and we have been for many years that that doesn't always work out that way. People don't change their footwear. They don't adhere to the rehabilitation program they've been given. They don't um, do many, many things that we tell them to do, which we are telling them to do from a very good, good position. So I'll come to you on this one, Jody, if I may, just because you were the one that, that just brought it up. Um, mm. why, why don't people change? Why don't pay? Why aren't patients good patients? Why won't they just do what we tell them to do? It's because behaviours and what drives behaviours uh, are, are complex. So we have to be capable, we have to have the knowledge, we have to believe that it's a good thing to do. Um, and MI talks a lot about ambivalence. And um, what is meant by ambivalence in MI terms is that, that people feel more than one way about something, which we all do. So, uh, for example, I feel that it's good to go to the gym and and be fit and healthy but sometimes I also feel that I want to go home and eat cake so it's just that <laughs> you know people feel more than more than one way about behaviors and 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 behaviors are fleeting so what I might feel today might not be the same tomorrow um, and we can see we only see patients in a in a snapshot um, and although their values and beliefs may not change their day-to-day -day behaviors and how it plays out um, can be influenced by so many things, uh, social environment, opportunity, uh, capability. So it's really very, very complex. So that maybe that's some, some of the reasons why people don't do what we want them to do. Yeah. And if I flip that question on its head and, and pitch it to you, uh, Joanne, um, what reasons do people have for changing? You know, some patients, they come in and from, from minute one, they're just, they're just listening and they're, they're, you've got the buy-in, they're engaged and they... They do, you know, you could tell them, as I always say, some patients, you always say, oh, that for that the telephemeral pain, you just need to rub a parsnip on it and that'll make, and you know they would, you know, we say it jokingly. Is it, is it just the opposite of what Jodie said or is it, is it something else? Yeah, I, I, I think it's quite individual, first of all. Um, in, in my clinic, what I tend to do is get people to fill in a pre-questionnaire. And the first question on that questionnaire is how important is it for you to have insoles? And these are people with diabetes and neuropathy. Um, and it's just a, a 10 point scale. So when they come in the room, I already know their readiness for change. And, and by the fact that they've actually turned up to the appointment would show that they're at least ambivalent. You know, the, the fact they've bothered to, to turn up to an appointment which they uh, is clearly set out to provide them insoles would tell me that they're, they're, they have at least some interest in insoles. Um, 
some of my patients come in and and it's a 10 out of 10 and therefore I know already that really I'm preaching to the converted and I don't need to to talk to them about change in terms of in, in a motivational way but those who who score a five or so um, then that's different and uh, and the difference between those patients are, are often down to um, how their reasons for insoles um, and with people with diabetes and neuropathy is often not for foot protection the, the people that come in who want insoles for foot protection and who are very motivated or are those who have already had an amputation or, or have already suffered the burden of a, a foot ulcer. Um, and, you know, for them, there's a clear benefit to insoles and they completely understand that insoles are for ulcer prevention. But the large majority of my preventative patients, really the, the motivation for having insoles particularly is around um well-being and function so walking better um being more independent um and comfort so uh and not related to their diabetes or, or their medical health at all um and things that put them off wearing insoles specifically uh is is down to whether they think the insoles are going to have an immediate benefit to them um and whether the insoles are going to fit with their daily lives and, and, and I use the MI really to try and and um, find out what's important to them um, and then and and then use that consultation to to explore how insoles can be of benefit to them. Yeah, it's, it's actually really great to hear you say that you use the 0 to 10 scale to ask them, you know, when they come in to ask them where, where their beliefs are before before anything for two reasons yeah. firstly because i don't think we we're taught enough to ask people about their beliefs when they walk in what what they bring with them and they all bring something with them um yeah. but also since i went on my uh, my my mi knowledge compared to you guys is very minimal so i apologize for that but since i went on my little um two-day course we we were taught to do this this naught to ten scale about you know whatever behavior it is so on a scale of naught to ten how likely are you to do the rehabilitation exercises i'm going to give you or how you know what's your current uh, belief on um whether you 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 think you need orthoses and then we were taught that when they give an answer when they say uh, two to sort of say okay why aren't you lower you know to, to put it back to them yeah, yeah absolutely right. um or, or or the other question i'm sure you know as well is what what would have to happen for you to be one to two points mm -hmm. higher um so rather than kind of meeting the belief which already clearly is uh, two out of ten so they, they brought something with them that you think this is a barrier where well, you just reflect it back we'll come back onto reflections in a minute but i think that's um mm. yeah it's nice to hear that that my my little couple of hundred pound two-day course is on par with your level of knowledge i'm kind of <laughs> kind of feeling and quite I, good about that and after the after the um history taking etc again i asked them the same question about how important insoles are and whether they want insoles and actually i i tend not to go through to actually provide the patient with insoles until i've got that commitment and and that yeah. may take one or two or three appointments but but there's no point forcing an insole on somebody who is not ready to receive it or doesn't isn't asking for it um and then at discharge i ask them one last time um but i phrase it slightly differently i say how important are your insoles to you um and then i and then see if there's been a shift in in you know how they feel about using their insoles yeah awesome and that's just so different to as we said the old model of someone coming in 
we tell them what they need to do we give them the insoles we say go and wear these and then they we lose them to follow up the insoles end up somewhere in their wardrobe and and they become a statistic it's just yeah um andrew let me bring you in and and ask um I sort of touched on it earlier, but I just want to bring it back. We've talked about kind of why, why, the, why the patient isn't playing their role of good patient and doing the, all the things we say. I mean, it's already become clear why this should be important for podiatrists. But can you just sort of hammer home how important this is for well, all medical professionals, really, to, to at least not rush off and look on a court, an MI course, but just have a real understanding yeah. of the point we're trying to get at here? So... Absolutely. So, I mean, just just to, to follow on from the points that were just raised about patients' reasons for motivation and, and ambiv- ambivalence is a really is a really key point here. Um, but I think I shared with you in a little while ago that that uh, papers, the, you know, the, the myth of the unmotivated person, um, and and there is that sort of central tenet that actually everybody somewhere has has a motivation to do something. So a lot of what we're trying to do is is to try and get to that in one way or another. In, in, in the question specifically about podiatry, I mean, I think actually podiatry is relatively uniquely placed as a profession that can really run with this. Um, and I say that because whilst you do get um, some forms of motivational interviewing that very skilled uh, interviewers can, can maybe uh, get to uh, the, the heart of the matter quite quickly and, and not take very long in a consultation, the reality is for a lot of people, and particularly beginners, they're going to have to really build that rapport with the patient. Um, they're really going to have to sort of get those trust levels up and quite high. Um, and so with that sort of premise, um, you are probably going to sort of find that people who have that kind of longitudinal contact with their patients are going to sort of get more out of this because actually they, they end up seeing that person regularly over many months, even years, um, and they build up a really strong relationship with that person. And of course, each time some motivating interviewing techniques need to come into play it probably gets that much quicker and that much easier when that relationship is established so there's you know think about podiatry in our contact and for a moment i'll talk about you know from the diabetes context well actually that person will have a lot of contact with that patient whether it be from something as as routine nail care all the way through to part of the ulcer management team part of the offloading whatever it will be Um, and so you have such continual contact with that person uh, possibly more so than have with any other health professional you can have a really, really key role. But as we've already mentioned, this, this doesn't you know, confine to diabetes by any stretch of imagination. You can very clearly make a case for it in, in the context of your MSK caseloads and so on. So the reason I think we all need to be really familiar with it um, is that I think it is a fundamental shift in the way that we view our relationship. Um, and there's, there's a great sort of meme type thing that, that, that's been around for years that sort of says, um, from a patient's perspective, you know, don't don't confuse your two-hour lecture on my condition with my lived experience of the disease. And, and it comes back to that. You know, patients are experts in their condition and also they're going to be experts in what motivates them. Um, our job is to kind of be really good detectives and kind of figure out uh, what, what's going on under the bonnet, so to speak. Um, so I think all healthcare professions should, should certainly have this as part of their fundamental training. Um, and I know a lot of us didn't get that. So, you know, I, I would encourage CPD no, 100%. Perfect. And before we come on to, um, we'll touch on what this might look properly look like in clinic and we'll touch on, um, right at the end, that's reminded me, we must touch on um, sort of tools where we can send people to do, you know, there's a great app out there and there's good books and stuff. So I'm just scribbling to myself that we mentioned that at the end. Um, the one thing that was said to me when I first explained to someone I was doing this course um and I sort of crude, probably a narrative on the way I explained it, but, but they, it sort of was fired back at me. 
oh, so you're basically going on a course to get better at persuading people. Or, you know, people, you know, we talk about the patients that are non-compliant and we're going to get better at, at making them compliant. And, and it was pretty clear to me that when I first went on this course that that isn't in what they refer to as the spirit of MI. This isn't about coercing people, rubber arming them persuading them um could i get your, your guys sort of take on on you know uh, maybe touch on what the mi spirit is um and how we need to make sure we're, we're being clear here that we're still being utterly ethical um medical practitioners and we're not being car salesmen um let's go to we'll go to you jody um i always think that the mi spirit is uh the the how i need to be question this is how i need to be and it's based on a lot of the evidence around uh counselor or clinician um style and delivery of communication and the impact that that has on the patient or the client um and there is quite a bit of evidence that shows that the empathy, collaborative style, um, and some of the tools around that, some simple techniques around asking permission. Um, so if you're, if you're saying to your patient, is it okay if I ask you about your experience of having that foot ulcer or your experience of wearing that orthotic or the pain that you are in? If you ask permission, it automatically puts them in a position of control and power and the dialogue that then happens after that is very much different to the normal assessment process that we may be used to or that we heard about earlier. So the MI spirit um, is that is that um, how I need to be as a clinician and that that might be slightly different to um, the expert practitioner. Um, compassion is another key component of that and the ability to... Um, know when to bring up the issue around a change ambivalence when to move from that engagement into what should we focus on what is it that you would like to focus on um is is probably the key spirit as far as i i can uh, decipher from my own practice and from from the reading brilliant um joanne what, what, what are your thoughts um i think in, in terms of uh, the style of MI, I think one of the most important things I've learned is active listening. And it's, it's about being comfortable with those silences, uh, giving your patient time and space to tell their story. Um, and, and also just having the ability to um, delve deeper in, into uh, what they're telling you by reflecting back or summarising certain points that they, they might be talking about so trying to pick up in the conversation key phrases that will either allow you to get better insight into what is important to them or uh, listen listening for that change talk so that you can reflect back to them so that they can then find a way forward themselves and find a solution themselves as to how they can actually change in their day-to-day -day lives so Active listening, I think, is is the most important skill that I think MI provides the clinician with. Yeah, I think there's this horrible statistic that the average clinician in, interrupts the, the patient when they're telling their story after a, a, around about 23 seconds or something horrifying like that. Um, just because when we, we ask a question and they start going off uh, in a direction, we, we're, we're looking at the clock. We know we've got a full waiting room and we, we yeah. kind of try and rein the discussion back to where we want it or with or the worst thing being someone sitting there looking at a pro forma and they have to ask questions in the order of, 
of the pro forma. It's not, it's not a, it doesn't feel collaborative or, or like a discussion. And I, I was told I don't think it's, that in, in any general history taking, you should be listening 80% of the time and, and talking 20% of the time. Is, does that resonate with you, your, your guys' kind of thoughts? I think that's a really good rule of thumb. Um, absolutely. And, and when it's history taking, it's, it's not, as I, as I said previously, in the traditional form where you're asking a series of closed-end questions, this is yeah. active listening where actually the patient is, is telling you their story. Um, and you're trying really to, to get uh, an idea of the situation from their perspective, what it's like to be in their shoes um, and understand exactly what's important to them and, and why they're there and what they want out of the consultation. Yeah, Andrew. Any? I'm think what a lot of people do, um, which is also one of those things that you, you you kind of need a spotter. You kind of need somebody's experience in MI to kind of be a bit of a guide. You know, it's it's not something any of us can do um, just without any any sort of help. Um, but people often turn an open-ended question into a closed question. They start with a really beautiful statement in the question and then close it off. And then the patient ends up with a yes, no answer outcome. And, it, and it, it, that's really frustrating. Um, just I found really interesting, just when you were asking that question about, oh, you know, um, you're just learning to convince people to, uh, to, to, to change their behaviours or whatever. Um, it was interesting because Steve Rolnick actually changed the initial kind of uh, three overlapping circles that he had in terms of spirit of MI. Uh, originally sort of focused on um, evocation, on acceptance, um, and on sort of um, instilling a sense of sort of competence in people. Um, because he read a paper where someone had taken the MI uh, approach and said, I can, uh, with this technique, you can convince anyone to do what you need in seven minutes. <laughs> and it really sent the hairs up on the back of his neck. and said, this is not what we sort of invented this for. So in the in about ten years ago, they added another sphere of this and added compassion as part of the key spirit. To kind of say, actually, we have to go back and we have to go back and start with what the person at the centre of all this, what they want out of it, what their goal is. Then we can guide and facilitate because otherwise, it is open to a, potentially open to abuse, where you take a patient 